Welcome to the Governance Podcast, hosted by the Centre for the Study of Governance and Society here at King's College London. My name is Mark Pennington, and I'm the Director of the Centre and Head of the Department of Political Economy in which the Centre is housed. For today's podcast, we're delighted to have with us the Right Honourable Jesse Norman MP. Jesse is the Member of Parliament for Hereford and South Herefordshire, and today he's going to discuss with us his recent and very interesting book on Adam Smith, What He Thought and Why It Matters. Jesse, it's great to have you with us uh, today. Um, I wonder if we could start off just by you responding to a very basic question, which is, sure. uh, why write a book about Adam Smith and why now? Right. Well, thank you very much indeed, Mark. And um, thanks very much to Kings for having me uh, on the podcast. Uh, I should say, just in the strict interest of historical accuracy, that I'm not a member of the Privy Council, so I'm not the right honourable. I'm just a plain Apologies. MP. But um, having said that, let's crack Apologies. on to the meeting in hand, the matter in hand. Uh, so, uh, uh, why Adam Smith? Why now? Well, several reasons. Um, the first reason is because Smith remains an absolutely towering figure in the uh, world of political economy, and uh, I think it's very important. To uh, in a world which is short of figures of authority and in which his name has been routinely invoked and often traduced by people coming from different parts of the political and ideological spectrums, uh, it's important to be clear on what he really thought. Uh, and that often means just disabusing the left and the right and different parts of the centre, the neoliberals or libertarians, the Marxists, of some of the ideas that they may have and some of the caricatures, many of the caricatures that they have, the myths, if you like. The second reason is because I am very, I very strongly believe that Smith uh, has very important things to tell us now about an enormous range of uh, issues and also, of course, about how to think about those issues. And so I think he has implications for thinking in moral reflection, moral philosophy, moral psychology, in political economy, of course, centrally, in the way in which economics is taught now in universities, and sometimes in the received opinion of economics you find in policy think tanks and in government. Uh, but of course, also, crucially, uh, in sociology, and an awful lot of the part of the book is to rescue the part of Smith people forget about, they ignore, or they don't reflect on, which is the sociological Smith. And then finally, at the end of the book, to say, well, actually, there's a whole series of really important issues now that we can start to address, understand better, describe better, and hopefully, in due course, start to advance solutions to by using these ideas, by drawing on them, and by stimulating further reflection. Okay, that's great. You mentioned the uh, sociology, um, and actually, one of the first set of questions I'd like to look at would be your understanding of Smith's theory of human nature mm. and of uh, what you might call socio sociality. Um, so one of the myths that you tackle in the book is the notion that Smith works from a model that assumes that the primary human motivation is some form of material self-interest. Yes. Uh, you explain that he has a far richer account of human nature, which focuses as much on the capacity for people to be empathetic than it does on narrow self-interest. I wonder whether you could just summarise what you think Smith's theory of human nature is and the role that empathy uh, plays within it. Yes, of course. 
So let me take the, as it were, historical and descriptive question first, then we can come to the analytical question. Um, for me, Smith has a good claim to be considered the founder of sociology, just as he does the founder of um, modern political economy. And I can come on to the reasons why in the case of political economy. In the case of sociology, it's because before that great you know, 19th century trio of um, Marx, Weber, and Durkheim, you have Smith thinking very hard in The Theory of Moral Sentiments, his first book, 1759, about the nature of human beings and the interactions they have with each other. And that's really, above all, a work of moral psychology and social psychology more than it is a work of moral philosophy as such. Now, what does Smith actually think? Well, Smith thinks that um, Smith is very keen to, uh, uh, in, by implication, to rebut the Hobbesian view, the, uh, in many ways, um, uh, highly contested but nonetheless highly influential uh, 17th century view that uh, mankind was essentially self-interested, that that self-interest was itself the basis for uh, a theory of sovereignty via a social contract, people giving up a degree of self-sovereignty because their lives in that context were nasty, what is it, short, uh, nasty, British and short, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish and short is the <laughs> phrase, um, and giving up that sovereignty to a, to a Leviathan in order to in order to, as it were, create a social structure within which society could flourish. Um, Hobbes has a completely different picture of that. He's very close to, sorry, Smith has a very different picture to that. He's very close to Hume, his great friend and uh, mentor. And you'll recall that Hume has a devastating counter to the Hobbesian idea of a social contract, which is that um, if uh, it was not possible for people to agree uh, the nature of a social contract before having society at all, then why is it necessary to posit such a social contract at all? Clearly, an institution existed. Mm -hmm. That is the institution of promising. And so, in other words, human beings have to have that um, natural sociality that allows promising as an institution to arise. And this is really an Aristotelian more account of, of human nature. And it allows... Uh, it allows for a very important reorientation away from this highly materialistic and selfish conception of human nature towards what you've rightly described as a much richer human psychology. Uh, that then allows Smith in turn to ask the question, well, given, and this is almost, this is equally a, a Burkean idea, given that human uh, nature is to be in civil society, is to be in society and in due course in civil society, um, then how can that be, and uh, how, in fact, do social and moral norms, standards, arise within that society? And Smith's answer is that human beings have a uh, a basic capacity to be uh, to observe, to be aware of, and in due course to be moved by the feeling of others. He calls that sympathy, mm -hmm. and. It's not sympathy in the in the extended sense that we would feel. It's more of a psychological capability rather than an emotion as such. Uh, but it does yield to the capacity to put oneself in other people's shoes and to ask yourself the question, what would it be if I was observed by them and by others as I observe them? And therefore, um, what you get is a, an other-directed idea of 
uh, human moral psychology, human standards, human norms and values. And the contrast is between that and what you might call an, an inside-out theory. God gives human beings their moral uh, ideas, their moral expectations, they then act those out. This is saying, actually, we just get them from each other. And its, and its deep foundation is, is really the Humean idea that uh, we can give an account of human nature, we can give an account of uh, science of science of man in all its different dimensions without having to include a premise about the existence or the reality of God. We can just do it. Humans are all there is. Yeah. And we don't need to be disturbed or panicked about this very disenchanted idea, but we have to come to terms with it and we have to include it in our philosophy. And then what's so fascinating when you get to the 19th century, if you've got some sociologists listening, is that you find, of course, this then reflected in a reflection above all in Germany, on the Kantian idea that there nevertheless is a transcendental realm, a moral realm of duty, universalizable duty, and then that gets rebutted, if one's being really, um, just cutting through an enormous amount of history and thought, by this Nietzschean idea that God is dead. There's no such thing as a transcendental idea, and that becomes then, in, in terms of some respects, the foundation for Weberian ideas of man in society, if you like. Can we just go back to what you said about Hobbes? Because what I... I think what a lot of people take from Smith who look at the theory of moral sentiments is the idea that he has an account which emphasises the idea that moral order doesn't need to come from legislators yes. or from God. It's yes. a bottom-up account yes. of the way rules are developed. Yes. So if you think of, I mean, I guess a silly example, um, when when children come into the into the world, they're often incredibly selfish creatures. Um, but when they interact with other children, when they steal their toys... <laughs> They find they get hit or abused in a certain way, and then they discover actually what norms of acceptable conduct are. They actually discover through interaction, yes, through receiving praise, through being sort of um, castigated when they act against what might be an acceptable moral standard, what the appropriate form of conduct actually is. So you actually have a sense of morality and the enforcement of that evolving bottom up through the interactions of the different participants. Is that an accurate account? Of, yes, I think, of that's very, that I think that's a very nice account, and it does several things. One is it, it hints at um, the, in some respects, game-theoretic ideas that come out of a bottom-up oriented view of human behavior. And um, as you know, one, well, you know better than anyone, Mark, you can, you can get theories of norms as distinct points of equilibrium arising yeah. out of that kind of theory. Um, but, but it also does something very interesting. Of course, Smith isn't living at a time when we have detailed studies of individual human psychology or of child interaction or anything like. But what he does do is to tell enormously persuasive and um, uh, interesting, simple stories about humans, how humans actually interact. And they are so obviously generalizations of human experience that they have a kind of evidential status yeah. in a funny way. It's a very interesting way of doing um, uh, 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 this kind of research. It's not, it's not anecdotes, it's not evidence, it's something in between. Um, paradigm example, if you like, something of that kind. Um, the other thing that's really interesting just to pick up is that you're absolutely right that for Smith, the fundamental human driver on the moral side is the, the capacity of sympathy. The driver is what he calls 
Um, the, the man desires not merely to love, he says, but to be lovely. That is fit and proper object of love in the eyes of others. Now, the reason why that's important is precisely because it's in that context of public praise or blame that the hmm. internalization of praise or blame as a moral norm takes place. And he gives us what I think is still a remarkably interesting and productive and fruitful account in many ways possibly a true account of how um, human moral sensibility arises out of that feeling of praise or blame. And as you know, there's a lot of literature in sociology about the transitions in cultures from shame cultures yeah. to guilt cultures where this internalization takes place at a social level as well. Okay. I, I mean, one, one thing that critics sometimes focus on in this kind of an account is the argument that, and this is one I think you do address in the book, that it might be said this is a purely descriptive account mm. of morality. Mm. So it's describing how people act in a way which is to do what they think others are going to praise them for. Yes. Um, but that doesn't address whether or not the action itself is actually worthy of praise. Yes. Um, so how do you respond to this charge that some would put that, that what Smith has here is really a purely descriptive account of how norms are formed and enforced, but it doesn't really tell us whether or not what is formed and enforced is good in its own right. Yes, I have, you know, quite a lot of sympathy with that view, and it was put to him during his own lifetime by a man called Gilbert Elliot, and he struggles to try to address it, and that's important. And it, one can't help feeling, and I say this in the book, that ultimately, um, you know, his account, however plausible and interesting it is, can't be entirely dissociated from a um, a substantively Christian account of, as it were, moral behaviour and the moral virtues, even though he is is not in any public professing way in his writings uh, 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 an advocate of any particular religion. I mean, he, he remains fastidiously aloof on the. He talks about our maker, our divine, you know, creator. Um, so I think that I have sympathy with that. And of course, out of that reflection comes this standard response, of which, in a way, the Kant is a, a perfect example that um, really we just we're just we're locked in a world of relativity, and what we're looking for is an anchor that says that these things are, as it were, morally good uh, in themselves. And we need a procedure that's taken away from history that allows you to do that, and that's what universalizability of moral injunctions and the idea of duty in Kant is designed to do. Um, uh, uh, where I think it's really interesting, where I think it starts to get more interesting, is if you can show the extent to which embedding this kind of theory of descriptive theory of norms um, and the evolution of norms allows for processes akin to natural selection to select pro-social norms. Because then I think you are moving towards um, things that are um, good. Now, they may not be good, as it were, for more than a population. They may struggle to get outside that degree of localization, but um, it, still a, it still gives you a mechanism for choosing the better over the worse. Um, the other thing I think it does that's quite helpful is that um, it allows you to say, um, to run the argument in reverse. So you can say within some things that here are, as it were, pro-social norms um, that are actually antisocial. You know, there's a subsection which of a, a gang culture, if you like, which is where all the same procedures and forces are working, but as it were, in the generation of norms that are ultimately antisocial. And I think that's quite an interesting idea as well, and yeah. in some respects, the strength of the theory. Yeah. Well, that, that leads me on quite nice actually, the next question I had, which is, in the Smithian account of morals, how do norms or morals change? 
who is the agent of change? If we're in a situation where we've got some kind of bad equilibrium, yes, um, or people just perceive that, well, what others think I should do is yes. not what I actually think I should do. Yes. How do people challenge that? How do they move in such a way that we start to get some kind of incremental shift in the content of what people think is actually acceptable behaviour? Um, I mean, that is an enormous question. And I'm not sure that Smith has a developed account of how norm change occurs. Uh, if we were looking at it from you know, modern uh, perspective, it's not hard to see some factors that would have an effect. I mean, law is a, you know, yeah. to change in law would be a, a way of changing norms. Um, uh, the charismatic pop, uh, politician is a way of shifting norms. But what's really interesting is how sometimes norms shift just by the emergence of a dominant subculture mm. um, of, as it were, mutual esteem within uh, an existing uh, group without any top-down or shaping analysis. And, and we see this again constantly. Sometimes it goes backwards, um, but, yeah. but often it goes forwards. And, and I think that is very interesting. One of the things that's so interesting to me about the whole approach is that it is so fruitful for thinking about what we see in today's world, echo chambers of um, localized, as it were, mutual support um, becoming influential norms more widely, um, often on the basis of the loudness of the voice and the passion of the group rather than its intrinsic superiority. And the other thing which I think is really interesting is the tremendous sense of uh, self-righteousness often abetted by views about meritocracy, which goes alongside that, because we see this everywhere in Brexit, the Brexit arguments on both sides. The one thing no one ever wants to I thought to we admit, were going to avoid that today. Well, I, listen, I would, love, I would love to avoid it, but it's, it's such a perfect example, I can't not touch on it since we're in the middle of Brexit arguments at the moment. But, but this overwhelming feeling that people have of the need for self-justification, the overwhelming need, which comes out of Smith's desire that people have to be to be lovely in the eyes of others, to ratify, to validate, to be able to say I was right all along, never to change their ground. Um, and again, I'm finding this really interesting contrast in thinking about Weber now. You know, Weber has a distinction between pluralism and polytheism. And, you know, pluralist society, multiplicity of different ends and values. Polytheistic society, everyone theologically committed to some set of values in conflict with others, not really prepared to entertain um, other reflection and therefore impermeable boundaries growing between the different tribes. And that's something we see so much. I'm almost tempted to say, and this is a coinage of my own, we've got an idiotheistic approach because everyone thinks that they, and they uniquely, have a view which is right and no one else can question it. And that's, of course, insane. And it's completely contradictory to all of the deliberative processes of democracy that we've evolved in this country and in other countries, which are precisely designed to put views in contrast with each other and to explore difference. I mean, there's, there's another... You talk about recent events. I mean, I think certainly the theory of moral sentiments can tell us a lot about, um, well, it can help us to understand things like celebrity culture. Yes, I totally what agree. What goes on in social media. Absolutely right. Because this is very much, people looking for likes on Facebook is, in a way, praise and blame. People want instant signal. I couldn't agree with you more. All this clickbait. Yeah. It's exactly right. But there is a tension there in Smith, isn't there, where on the one hand he thinks this kind of mechanism is the way in which moral norms are enforced because people want to do the right thing. Sure. But he also talks about there being a man within the breast. Yes. The person who knows what is really praiseworthy. Yes. And that is the kind of person, it strikes me, who would be the person who will stand up for what they believe to be right, 
not necessarily just what others think is the right thing. So there have to be some actors who are actually willing to to take the flack, to take yes. the heat. There have to be sort of moral entrepreneurs who initially, yes. if you're going to get new norms, are willing to go against the tide and stand up for something different that they believe in, in the hope that over time, others will start to copy them. Yes, I think that's right. It's very interesting, and, and you can run, again, a series of arguments about this, but Smith has the idea of an impartial spectator. And the idea of that, and it's in, way, in some ways it's an anticipation, what Kant makes into universalizability, the, the impartial spectator is designed to rule out the merely idiosyncratic in a judgment about as it were, an individual person versus, the, as it were, a wider group, or in the individual circumstances of a judgment. Now, that's very useful. The trouble with that is that it's very easy for that to shade into being a little homunculus-type conscience. And then you can perfectly easily say, well, hold on a second, what determines the moral code of the homunculus? And suddenly you're into what looks like a bit of a regress. Hmm. So you have to be very careful about how you erect that. And that's ultimately where I think the, the non divorceability of his view from a Christian ethic yeah. comes in. But you're absolutely right. There's another way, interestingly, and no one's really explored this, but I think it's an interesting idea, um, which is that, uh, of course, you can link it to political economy. And one of the things I do in the book is to talk about how theories of reputation as capital mm-hmm. can create a momentum within a person's mm-hmm. character that might lead them to say, actually, no. I do agree And they've built up a lot of internal and external brand reputation in a certain direction. So actually, no, I don't believe that. I'm, that's not what I've stood for historically. I'm going to stand against that. And that's, again, I think a recognized phenomenon. And I think Smith's view, and actually some really interesting view, and I talk about Ben Abu and Tyrol. I've got, we've got Tyrol's industrial organization textbook on the table <laughs> in, the, uh, in, in the book. But I mean, there is some really interesting current work that's looking at some of these ideas, and I think a very pr- productive and interesting way. Before we go on to the political economy stuff, which I want to come on to, sure. I think maybe a nice way of, of going into that would be to, to, to talk about the notion of, you know, the famous notion of the invisible hand um, in Smith, yes. Yes. which isn't actually mentioned that many times in no, his that's writings, right. as you point no, out very right. well. But what I think what, at least in my reading, anyway, what the invisible hand is referring to is a kind of social process. Mm. It's an understanding that um, there are emergent properties in society yes, where yes. people interact and then something emerges which is more than the sum of its parts. It's yes. not what has been anticipated yes. by the participants. And this is what he has in terms of his theory of, of ethics or morals. It's mm. an unintended consequences mm. or what some people call spontaneous order type account mm. of how mm. morality develops. Mm. And there is a parallel then with how an economic order can arise. Yes. So you have a theory of a moral order and then you have a theory in the, the wealth of nations of how you have an economic order. But they're both operating on the idea that a significant amount of social order comes about even though people aren't intending it. And perhaps even because in some circumstances, people aren't intending it. Yes, is that, very is much that so. accurate? Yeah, I think that is. I mean, one of the things I do in the book, uh, probably more than many other books, I mean, there are several things I try and look that are different from, as it were, other books on Smith. And, and one of them is to make the reader work a little bit harder on the philosophy and to understand some of the underlying commonality between the different parts of Smith's view. Um, because I think what he's giving us is, in a way, his shot at a science of man. And it's an integrated conception of and theory of human behavior and 
as you say, the same kinds of principles are operating in each one. So in political economy, we get a theory of barter and exchange mm. yielding spontaneous order of shared economic benefit. Uh, in the case of morals, you get um, exchange of regard or esteem yielding the shared moral benefit of moral community. Um, and, uh, and, and, and then on third, and, and many, by the way, economic benefits from that, you know, cost saved, no need for law because norms exist, that kind of stuff. And then thirdly, and no one really picks this up, but he's got the same kind of argument being run about ideas and language. So communicative exchange as generating, um, as it were, uh, intellectual community and community of of ideas and thought and word and i think that's another very interesting and so it's the same it's the same fundamental mechanism yielding the same outcomes that is to say um a sense of the collective a sense of unexpected unanticipated benefit and as you say benefit and smith is explicit about this in the wealth of nations in regards to political economy that you know one couldn't necessarily have achieved had one gone out there yeah you know if those people had not made any part of their intention and and, and arguably might not have achieved it if they had when we talk about the political economy stuff, I'm going to talk about a bit more about what Smith's views on on markets actually are. Yes, which I think you're very good at, at explaining. Before we get into that, um, it's interesting to think that you know if you have a theory of the invisible hand, um, you you might also have theories of how the invisible hand can break down. Yes. Um, so economists have theories of market failure, which I'll I'll talk about a little bit in in a moment. Does Smith, in the moral arena? have a theory of, if you like, spontaneous order failure or moral failure. So these processes whereby which norms are selected, can they sometimes go wrong in the same way that a market might misfire or, or, or go wrong in certain circumstances? I mean, it's, very, it's a very interesting question, the way you've set it up. Um, he certainly does think things can go wrong. I mean, even the counterpart of the human desire to love and be lovely is what he regards as a... Uh, a, a debasing uh, excitement and interest in the fortunes of the rich and the great yeah. and the powerful. And, of course, that again links perfectly to celebrity culture when you build that with this little theory of micro-norms we've been talking about. Um, but uh, the fascinating thing there is that he's such a good, he's so good at thinking on both sides of the equation that he recognises that this can yield an empty materialism if people just, as it were, pursue wealth on the basis of trying to emulate the rich and the powerful. Um, but he also thinks that that is the fundamental driver that sustains competition and the striving that makes market work. And this is part of the one of the things I try and do in the book is to reorient the reader away from this myth that Smith is a kind of devout believer in free markets at all cost, whatever they are, towards the focus being where it should be and where it should be in political economy as well, which is on effective competition. Mm -hmm. And one of the worries that I have, just to take it right up to the present day, is that you know many politicians, including many politicians uh, in Britain and some of my own party, um, obsess about this um, evanescent idea of a free market without ever specifying what such a thing might be or how it might work or whether freedom in, in every market would be desirable, uh, and then at the same time miss the problem that actually competition is being eroded in many markets. And, you know, there are one or two rather good books have just come out recently explaining, um, and one of them would be Tepper's book on the myth of capitalism, just how competition is very rapidly eroding, both in the US and here, and in some respects in European countries as well. That's a, that's a, real, that's a real problem. And 
one of the reasons for thinking so hard about this is to try and reorient policymakers towards trying to crack these competition issues. Well, I mean, that might be a good point to move over to um, thinking about economics here. So my thinking on this would be, and I'd be interested to, to hear what your take is, mm. we can point to, in the moral realm, market failures. Mm. And you could point to, in the economic realm, market failures, the mm. idea that the invisible hand doesn't always work that well. Mm. Um, but for me, one of the things that comes out of Smith, and you might, you might differ on this point, is compared to what? Mm. So when we're talking about morality, mm. yes, we can point to celebrity culture as being, if you like, a moral market failure. Mm. Um, but what's the alternative? Would the Smithian account favour some kind of legislative response to that? My feeling in reading Smith has always been that although he would point to the fact that these bottom-up processes are very imperfect, mm. he'd also be very sceptical of the idea that from the top down, you could try to interfere in them in a way which is going to perfect them in some sense. Yes, I mean, I don't. we may not be able to push the parallelism between the moral and the political economic um, in every dimension, and we should be yeah. sensitive to that thought. Uh, it, to take the political economic point for the time being, uh, for the moment, uh, I, once you think in terms of vector competition, uh, then the taboo on state interventions, mm -hmm. which is very evident in Smith when he thinks about incumbences to trade yeah. from the clergy, from yeah. you know the guild, from uh, the government, um, starts to fall away. And it becomes possible to see, and Smith is perfectly clear, that there are cases in which government may need to take action in order to mm -hmm. improve well-being and in order to improve the functioning of a market. Classic example, in the negotiations that take place or in the interactions that take place between the workers who are disaggregated and the masters who collaborate, he's fully aware of the risk of cartelization and um, believes that the whole function of legislation, so whenever there's legislation that benefits the workers versus, as it were, the, um, the masters, it should always be preferred. Now, that's an incredibly strong line, if you think about it, and especially so for someone who's supposed to be a libertarian uh, economist. And that's because he's got a quite different way of understanding the relationship between the state and the what we would now call the private sector, a much more evolutionary way, and a way that I think is interestingly linked to an idea of commercial society. If you go back to the moral <coughs> side, just to come back to the thing you were talking about, um, it's hard to see how the effective agent would be the state. Um, I mean, if you, if you, I mean, he and Hume have this fascinating argument, as you may recall, um, where Hume, Hume makes a marvelous argument about the church. Hume says, well, look, um, uh, we're very keen to avoid uh, enthusiasm and religious extremism. So we're having a nationalized church is a thoroughly good idea because whenever anything is nationalized, it loses all its vigor and energy. Um, Smith's not having any of that. Smith, it's a brilliant argument. Um, and Smith says, uh, Smith thinks actually the way you get it is by having lots of individual preachers on the street corners or the equivalent churches duking it out with each other in a competitive way. What we now know is um, that actually that's an argument for extremism and you don't get the consolidation that might bring order with yeah. it and the power of the extremes is so great in a kind of both ends against the center of the bell curve type um, social and economic environment that they get more power than they should. So I mean that's in a sense a problem it sounds like it's a problem that we don't necessarily know how to to solve and mm. I'm thinking of of another one here reading the book that I found very challenging and I I, I actually don't have 
uh, an answer to. You're very good in explaining, going back to the previous point, that mm. Smith is in some ways an egalitarian. Mm. Um, he's very pro-poor. Mm. He's very concerned that merchants and manufacturers often can conspire against the public. Yes. Um, he's concerned about power asymmetries. Yes. And one of the arguments that he's putting forward for a broadly market economy with some governmental functions, but mm. limited governmental functions, mm. is that that environment is one in which the poor are likely to do better. That yes. the bargaining power That's is going to be right. greater That's than right. it would otherwise be. He's not in favor of material equality, but he's in favor of a kind of equality of status, yes. which he thinks a competitive system provides to people. Yes. In some ways, that's quite similar to a sort of Republican type argument that people need to be treated with respect and you look at the institutional preconditions for that. Yes. The challenge is, and I think um, this is a problem that no one's cracked, what do we do when people who've acquired economic power then try to use the power of the state to limit competition? Yes. Now, there's a big debate, I think, in political economy at the moment about the lack of competition you've described. Mm. Where does that come from? Mm. One view is that it's it's endogenous to the market. Yep. And there might be some cases where that is the case, where you've got these big network yep. type industries. Yep. Markets are just intrinsically um, structured in a way. Where you move towards yep. there being one dominant supplier, like Facebook or whoever sure. it may be. But there are many other cases where you can say, the market imperfections, if you like, are not endogenous to the market. Yep. They arise because special interests are able to lobby for favorable regulation. So when yes. Smith talks about merchants and manufacturers yeah, meeting yeah. together to conspire against the public, he's thinking about the role that politicians play in abetting them in that, oh, yes. that process. There's no doubt about that. Now, what can we do? Is there anything that we can do to, to deal with that? I mean, it seems to me that you get very contradictory views. You have a left-wing view, which is really that, well, we need to stop these people getting to the position of power in the first place, sure. that they can have this lobbying power. Sure. You have a right-wing view, which I would say is more saying, well, if you get the state out of these areas, then you remove the, the prize that the lobbyists are actually seeking. Yes. Neither of them seem entirely convincing to me. No. I and think, I, I don't know whether you have a route out of it. Well, let's just, so let's just be clear about a couple of things. First of all, um, the, the phenomenon you describe is absolutely something that Smith understands and talks about in the Wealth of Nations. So, uh, and we can describe it in modern language as being um, um, business and government getting too close together uh, and a business extracting rents by manipulating legislation in a way that reduces competition, prevents insurgents, you know, limits um, other forms of new market entry and the like. And, and that, of course, is a fantastically familiar phenomenon, in some respects abetted rather than reduced by technology. Yeah. And then you have a further question, which is technology platforms that arise as monopolies almost or quasi-monopolies in themselves, and they have to, I think we have to think about them. Now, the key other point about Smith, which I think is implied in a way uh, in what you said, is the I, Smith does not have Smith has got, a, has got a theory of how markets work, but he's actually got multiple theories of how markets work. So Smith um, uh, uh, runs an eco economic theories for um, uh, markets that you might consider to be um, 
what were famously called in the, in the, in the literature haircuts and hamburger markets, where goods are consumed and uh, bought and consumed, bought and consumed. Um, but he's far too clever not to realize, as many, many practicing economists have realized now, that these markets really are, every single one is different from every other. There may be points of commonality between them, but you can't just lift and shift your thinking in an uncritical way, or, or pretend that the maths does it alone for you. You have to be you have to be attend to the nature of markets, and sometimes that specific those specifics can really change how you know what analysis is applied and what diagnosis is applied. Um, and so, for example, you know to think that haircuts and hamburger market prescriptions apply equally well to asset markets with all of the different pricing mechanisms they use and the capacity for um, overshoots and bull runs and bear. Um, failures and the like is just a mistake. So I think Smith forces us to be more particular about where the problem occurs, as well as in thinking about what resulting measures you have to take now uh, to to cure this issue of rent extraction and government getting too close. Um, having said that, we can be perfectly clear that um, you know mechanisms that allow. Uh, uh, business and government to blend too closely together would be things he would reject. Um, uh, the passage of laws that doesn't ask the question, will this abet um, existing insiders at the extent of, to the cost of outsiders? Um, those things, you know, he'd be thoroughly hostile to. Um, s- subsidy, spending, tariffs that have that effect, and all those trade-related type things. That's quite a substantial burden body of modern economic thought just in those three areas at all. And the line of thought, of course, bears further extension when you get to the platforms. And what it implies is, in my judgment at least, um, of course, I'm not speaking as a minister, let alone a politician, or a politician, let alone a minister. Um, but what I think it implies ultimately is a much richer conception of competition policy. I think we've got to be much more sophisticated about how we deal about uh, with the competition issues posed by Facebook versus those posed by Google versus those posed by Amazon. And I think the remedies, actual potential, um, are going to be different in each case. If we let's, let's take another case. There's a very interesting section in the book on financial regulation. Yes. So financial markets, to take your point that no markets are, you know, there are different markets, not, not, no two markets are the same. Yeah. Um, we know from a lot of economic analysis, these are markets where there are important information asymmetries yes. uh, that operate. And that's a standard argument that some people use to argue for regulation in this field, to counter yes. the information asymmetry. Yes. But equally, we know that when you have the regulation, it can then be captured by the incumbent players. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So instead of the regulation actually dealing with the market failure, it creates a different kind of market failure or, or yes. a governance failure, if yes. you like. Yes. Now, I don't see, and I don't think you necessarily give an answer of, of what is the way out of that, because if we talk about the financial crisis, there's, there's a section in the book which points out that financial regulation prior to 2008 had been growing. Yes. It's not that there had been no. a complete bonfire of controls. By no means. So if the regulation isn't dealing with the market failure because we've got these capture issues arising, what is going to address that failure? So you've got to, so I think the the truth that you're aiming at is that there's no one size fits all recipe that you can just apply to markets that cures both of the as it were problems yeah. that you're describing. Uh, and that inevitably pushes you towards more of a connoisseurial approach that's problematic politically because it implies a degree of discretion um, there are some areas where we do give discretion we give a lot of discretion in financial markets precisely because they're so complicated and fast moving that you could never have legislation that would pass fast enough and therefore you have to have um, empowered regulators the failure before 2008 was overwhelmingly a failure of two kinds one was an intellectual frankly um, 
slackness, unawareness, over-optimism within government generally um, about the possibility of threat from this source. And the second was a lack of effective supervision. The regulations were there, but the effective supervision wasn't. The only, I love these situations where you've only got one fact you need to know to explain something. Um, the only fact you need to know to explain the 2008 crash is that um, you, you, bank leverage in Britain had been 20 times equity for 40 years, from the year 1960 to 1970s, still 20 times, 1980, 20 times, 1990, 20 times, 2000, 20 times, 2007, 50 times. That's the intellectual mistake, compounded by regulators who weren't tough enough, weren't asking basic enough questions. And in some respects, the fascinating experience in, in financial regulation has been that in some areas they've complexified, in other areas they have not, they've gone the opposite way. So we're moving more towards a kind of maxim-based view that you shouldn't just shouldn't allow leverage to get over a certain level in your banking system because um, it can destroy value too quickly. Okay, so, I mean, I can see how you're keen to emphasize that Smith isn't is not an ideologue, that he's a kind of pragmatist. Mm. And this comes through in this... Yeah, don't forget, pragmatist to me implies a core of principle. Yeah. It's not a yeah. purely expeditious but it's, um, wandering it's, between positions. It's a flexible capacity to yeah. apply principles right. and recognises that they may apply That's right. differently in different circumstances. That's exactly right. Let me push back a little bit, just perhaps sure. in the final part of the conversation, which is on that, one of the things I take from Smith is a scepticism of politicians. Oh, yes. Um, so there are, you know, there's a famous quote about being very skeptical. I forget the exact details of the quote, but about people who claim to trade for the public good. Yes. Um, and you can say politicians are people who <laughs> claim to trade for the public good. Um, but if we're committed to Smith's notion of egalitarianism, you know, it's that politicians are no different to anybody else. Mm. They seek praise, uh, not absolutely. always justifiably. No, no, that's absolutely right. And this can often lead them to intervene in public affairs who knew? in a way that creates mischief. In a Brexit debate, who knew that that could happen, Mark? I mean, yes, of course. So how do we how do we constrain politicians? If we need to, in certain circumstances, constrain market actors yep. because of these market failures, yep. Smith's very aware of political failure or government failure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do we constrain, in your understanding of Smith, politicians to make sure they don't do damage through their own activities? Well, of course, that's a, that's a marvellous question. Um, I think you've got several things. One is, uh, I mean, we described some of the particular areas, you know, limit the ways in which they can interact with business, transparency, we might talk about, um, you know, well-functioning institutions that remember their knitting and are empowered to stick to that knitting is important. And so institutions, professional institutions or career civil service institutions that are not seeking to officials, that are not seeking to please politicians, but are retaining the ethos of their institution, that's an important aspect to it. Of course, Smith is extremely um, uh, dismissive about what he takes to be the political desire to just tack between expedience and, um, as you say, seek praise where they can find it. Um, he's also surprisingly complimentary about the genuine statesman who acts out of principle, recognising, and this is the obvious difficult kicker, that principle may not be applicable in every context, and that, as it were, sometimes they can call for different remedies and people can be contradicted or praised. It's more a Burkean thought, in a way, that, you know, that circumstance, he has a, Burke has a marvellous line, and in some respects the ideas very much overlap. So, uh, circumstance gives to every political principle its distinctive colour and um, uh, 
distinguishing effect. And um, that is the... So I think Smith would have sympathy with that view. I think you've got the wider thought, though, which is that actually... You asked earlier, you know, what is the contrast for Smith between his, as it were, between the, 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 the morality of the marketplace or the agora and the, and the morality of, a, of a, a higher morality? And, and it's clear he does have such an idea in mind. And it's a kind of stoic morality um, with the cardinal virtues of, as it were, prudence and temperance being in, in front of it. And I think it is interesting that those are also the qualities he associates with the statesman. And he's very, and, the, and almost the person he's most critical of is what he calls the man of system, who thinks everyone can apply a rule to people as though they were chess pieces. And the reason I find that so interesting is because it fits with what I take to be his fundamentally evolutionary conception of a political and economic society with all of these forces working within them. And that pushes the, pushes the emphasis of the debate away from capitalism in some static way towards commercial society, processes of the emergence of market activity, the dignification of private property, the codification of that by the state, then the use of that to establish new thresholds of private uh, enterprise and activity. And I mean, I, I see this in government uh, today. I've just taken through the House of Commons the space bill. Now, what does the space bill do? It allows you to say, well, this particular private individual can set up a space uh, base um, in a spaceport in Britain, and off that um, space rockets can either be blasted or take off via aircraft, and they can put bits of metal we call satellites into space, and they can derive a revenue from that. Now, that couldn't exist without being dignified by the state. And there are many other examples of that process of informal rights becoming codified and recognized and giving rise to capital activity. And so I think that that evolutionary conception of commercial society, to me, is the is in a way the deepest legacy that we get from Smith. Okay, well, um, Adam Smith and uh, outer space, <laughs> that might be um, an interesting point at which to conclude the conversation, but I'd just like to say thank you very much, uh, Jesse, for having this discussion today. Here in the Department of Political Economy, we're very much concerned about reuniting politics and economics, and I think your book on Smith, and I hope the discussion that we've had today really uh, shows the value of that. So thank well, you very much. Well, listen, I, I can't tell you, and, and may I thank you, not just for chairing a department that I deeply believe in, in an area I massively support, but also what for what has been, um, by some measure, the most intellectually testing interview I've had since I published the book, which is great, and I love it, and I'm incredibly grateful. Thank you very much. <laughs>